Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone. It is my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event hosted by the RSA. My name is Alcinda Honwana. I am a professor of anthropology and I'm currently principal interregional advisor at the United Nations Secretariat in New York. And I'm also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I am delighted to be joined by Trish Lorenz, who is the winner of the 2021-2022 Nine Dots Prize. The Nine Dots Prize is an award that promotes and encourages creative, innovative thinking to address contemporary societal issues. It encourages thinking outside the box. Trisha's prize-winning essay was inspired by the question, what does it mean to be young in an aging world? And she argues that such a question needs to take into account the significant young populations in Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, she did that by looking at uh, the situation of young people in two mega cities in Nigeria, Lagos and Abuja. And as she argues rightly, while the Western world is aging, most of the global South is getting younger and younger. Having been a journalist over 50, uh, 15 years, Trish is a regular contributor to titles including The Guardian, The Financial Times, and The Telegraph. Her reporting covers subjects ranging from design, art, and culture to travel, politics, and human interest. Trish, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. It's fantastic to be here, and so nice to meet you, Alcinda. Nice to meet you, too. Well, before we get started, let me welcome everyone uh, to join a conversation on our chat using the hashtag RSA Young Disruptors on Twitter. We would love to hear your thoughts and comments. Um, Trish, shall we start with the, our conversation by tackling again that question uh, for the prize? What does it mean to be young in an aging world? Why did you think uh, you would like to tackle this question and why did you decide to apply for the prize answering this, uh, this question? Why was that the, the question in, important to you? Well, as you, the question basically called to me the minute I saw it because as you say, I mean, we, we definitely have an aging global north. In Europe, the average age is 43, which is quite old. And in 2018, for the first time in human history, there were more people aged over 65 than under five. So there's definitely a demographic change going on. But the question was framed, how does it feel to be young in an aging world? And to be honest, it's not an aging world. There is one part of the globe that definitely has no problem with aging. In fact, has a massive youth bulge. And as you said, that's sub-Saharan Africa, where the median age is 18 
And by 2050, there will be a billion young people living on the continent. And by the end of this century, one in two, every other youthful person will be from Africa. So for me, it felt like very obvious that if you were going to answer the question, how does it feel to be young in an aging world, you very much need to talk to people who are going to be young in sub, uh, from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I also felt that in general, when people ask questions about the youth, uh, young people in general, when people ask those questions, they look to Gen Z and millennial in the global north, be that in the United States or Europe or wherever, and that often young Africans' voices are not heard. So I felt it was a really good opportunity to talk to young sub-Saharan Africans about what was going on. And I chose to, I chose Nigeria because I had a limited amount of time and so I needed to bring this, the, the story down. And Nigeria is often called the giant of Africa. It contributes like a quarter of the GDP of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and is already the seventh largest country in the world and will be the third largest probably on current projections by 2050 when it's gonna be bigger than the US. It's also a very, very young country 42% uh, of Nigerians are under 14. So, you know, definitely haven't got an, age, an issue with an ageing world there. In terms of the prize, I felt that I had something that I wanted to say and, and I, I really honestly didn't expect to win it. I was thrilled <laughs> beyond belief to have the chance to do this. But I just thought that the question had been not so well framed and I wanted, I wanted to say what I, what I just said to you. So. Thank you. Thank you, Trish. Um, in your book, you describe this generation as the Sorosoko or Sorosoke. Could you tell us where this term comes from and what type of uh, people it represents? Yes, I mean, Sorosoke, there was a little bit of a debate about using this because for a lot of people, the pronunciation is, is difficult or unusual because it's unusual terms. But Sorosoke means speak up in Yoruba. And Yoruba are the people of Lagos and South West Nigeria. Um, and it was first used as a, a protest term actually in the NSILS protest against police brutality about two years ago. And then it was co-opted by this generation as a general term for their desire to speak up for uh, more economic rights, more political rights, a voice to minorities. And so it became a bit of a calling card for this generation. And then I personally chose it because I think it really exemplifies the kind of people I met when I was in Lagos and in Abuja, you know, very confident, very outspoken and, and creative disruptors, you know, challenging the system, speaking up against things that perhaps previous cohorts had either accepted or had thought about complaining, but hadn't been so vocal about um, as this generation was. So I thought it was a, a good title as well as having this connection to this youthful energy of protest in uh, Lagos. Hmm, very interesting. And talking about that and that uh, sense of, uh, um, you know, this idea of protesting, of social movements, and you spoke about the NSARS movement that started in 2017 when a SARS officer killed brutally a young man and sparkled all these uh, protests and revolt. Um, what, what was the impact of, uh, of, that, of that movement uh, for, you know, young people's sense of uh, 
uh, identity, engagement, and the sense of you know having the right to 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 speak out and and also defend their own uh, uh, situation, so to speak. Um. I think it was really, really a pivotal movement, particularly for the younger uh, members of this cohort. So those under 25 who were the prime movers behind NSARS. I mean, for people listening who might not know, SARS is the special anti-robbery squad. Um, and they're a police unit in uh, Lagos particularly, but I think there was issues with police brutality across the country who have become known for being very corrupt and targeting young people and robbing them. And as you say, killing them. I think the movement started in 2017, but then it really took off in 2020, again, on the death of somebody else. And what it did, I think, for the first time for this generation was it mobilized really the entire generation because so many, everyone I spoke to, whether they were um, male or female, middle class, working class, whatever, had had a negative experience with the police, all of these younger under 25. So it mobilized this whole generation together. They came to the streets, they saw their power in terms of the sheer numbers, in terms of the fact that they were speaking up against this. Um, they felt they really truly believed they could affect some change here. Uh, and I think it was the first proper moment of political engagement for many of these younger younger cohort as well. Unfortunately, um, the movement was ended quite violently. There was um, a shooting, the, the army turned up, people died, there was a shooting and it came off the streets. And there is now some debate about how that movement can continue as, a, as not a moment, but a movement, if you know how they can bring this forward into a more longer term political engagement. Um, it's a very social media driven movement, which I think is also interesting and is perhaps something that's reflected in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa also. Um, but you know, you need, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. No, that's, that's very interesting. But tell me more about the young people you met when you were in Abuja and uh, in Lagos. What mm -hmm. kinds of young people did you talk to? Um, what were their main challenges? Uh, not just political, but also socioeconomic. Could you tell us a little bit more about? Yes, I mean, I think I met really a diverse, I, I've spoke to probably more than 50 young people in both cities. Um, and I specifically actually spoke to people in cities rather than in, in the countryside, because so much of sub-Saharan Africa is urbanized now. You know, there's this perception that it's a, still an agrarian society, but in fact, more than 50% of people live in cities, there are 75 cities with more than a million people in it, which is the equivalent of all the cities in Europe and the US of the same size combined. And Lagos, which has 22 million people, is this mega metropolis. It would potentially be the largest city in the world by 2050, because Tokyo's numbers are coming down. So to, to focus, that's why I focused on this urban cohort rather than perhaps the more rural cohort. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with people across all sorts of um, experiences from very successful entrepreneurs to filmmakers and artists to activists to waitresses and hairdressers I mean really everyone and I would say a lot of I mean everyone has a different experience but perhaps the two biggest things that came out really was the first was the uh, transformative effect of technology on this cohort they are 
the first generation to have full-throated access to mobile technology and the internet, even as little as 12, 10, 12 years ago. In 2010, I think internet penetration in sub-Saharan Africa was around 5%. Now in Kenya, it's 85% and in Nigeria, close to 80 and I love all these statistics, I keep throwing them out, but um, there was a statistic that the 77% of sub-Saharan Africans have a SIM card. And, you know, mobile phones have changed the way people, they can bank mobile, through mobile apps. In fact, they're world leaders at uh, mo financial, mobile financial products. So half of all mobile accounts are in sub-Saharan Africa. And they health delivery through mobile phones, education delivery through mobile phones, and young people are starting businesses on Instagram. They're, you know, act, act, uh, combining together on social media like Twitter. For me, that was the thing that came out. And for and what they've always said to me was, technology is freedom. We are no longer bound by where we were born. We have access to everything that everybody else has, whether that's education, whether that's employment opportunities, whether that's just conversational opportunities among each other and with the West. So for me, that was one of the biggest things that really came out of yeah, my conversations yeah. with them. Very interesting. In, in, in my um, research, one of the issues that also came up uh, regarding technology, to a certain extent, yes, it allowed them to, uh, you know, created freedom, but also opened up the world to them. They could connect to the world in ways that the generation of their parents couldn't. But in doing so, it also exposed in a greater way, the limitations of their daily life, being it in the outskirts of the city or in the, 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 the small uh, villages, whatever. And they may, it made them uh, want a lot more. And, uh, and some of that are, is behind, uh, you know, ideas of migration, migration to mega cities, migration to outside the country, to other countries in the continent, and probably last migration to Europe. Although, you know, the, especially the media sensation is around the boats that go across the Mediterranean, the majority of Africans migrate within the continent. Absolutely. And so how, what is the link between the, the, the you know, technology, social media, and the way people move, uh, uh, you know, young people especially, move for um, opportunities, for better pastures? I didn't, I didn't really talk to anyone who specifically talked to me about how social media encourage them to move um, but it definitely brought up an awareness of of things that were not working be that politically and so for example quite a few young people in in Lagos referenced Black Lives Matter and said you know we saw that therefore we felt we could do NSARS not not that we couldn't before but it inspired us to say yes we have this same power so there was that and then some of the older of this cohort the ones already in their 30s said to me, you know, the young ones today, they want everything immediately, they want it fast, they, they'll, they just want to go on Instagram and look good, which is, <laughs> which is probably this, this idea you're talking about. But I think that's probably something that, you know, older generations say about Gen Z in the West as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just re re relate a little bit differently to technology than the younger ones. 
In terms of migration, it's interesting because the people who spoke to me about migration were really the highest educated and the ones who had the greatest ability to either afford to pay for the visas or to be able to get student visas and travel in that way. And um, I mean, I want to talk really about the continent, not about the diaspora, but the Nigerian diaspora is amazing. It is one of the most highly educated diasporas in the, in the US, there's 375,000 Nigerians and 62% of them have at least a bachelor degree compared to 30% of the population of America. So they're extremely uh, well-educated. They spend a lot of money back, more remittances from diaspora than oil and gas. I still can't believe that that's, that's literally, wow. yeah, wow, exactly. And they're also culturally very important. I think they act as cultural ambassadors for the, so this idea of, of immigrants in boats it's a little bit not really exactly, true. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And tell me more about the 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 entrepreneurs. Uh, yes. What are the main main challenges? What what is it? What makes you know them uh, um, succeed? And what are the barriers that they they're facing? Those well, who succeed, you know, what is it that they do that could help? Um, others? I mean, the barriers are pretty significant, actually, to entrepreneurial success, both regulatory on the ground, but also, I mean, you know, Lagos, and, and particularly Lagos, has still issues with infrastructure. Your electricity can fall at any time. The water's unreliable. Security has to be provided for. I was talking to a chef there. Um, his name is Michael. He's got a restaurant. He has to train all his staff because there's no culinary school. He provides accommodation for them because it's dangerous for them to travel home at night. And he said, you know, just to get the business off the ground, people in the global north don't understand the amount of things we have to provide beyond just succeeding in the business. You know, there is this, you have to have an exceptional drive, I think, the successful entrepreneurs in Nigeria, but probably everywhere, but particularly in Nigeria, to overcome these barriers that we take for granted. We just switch the light on and it works and they have to have generators and so there are definite barriers uh, to successful entrepreneurs but the ones who are successful have a couple of things in common the first is they look at the problems that they're facing and use them as a basis for their business I spoke with uh, uh, one entrepreneur very very successful tech entrepreneur his name is Ian he's in his 30s and he started a business called Andela because he saw that there were many, many talented young Nigerians unemployed. The unemployment rate is still quite high. And he created a platform that enabled these people to bid for work abroad in the US or Europe or the UK and get paid in dollars or euros or pounds. And obviously Andela takes a proportion, you know, gets a commission from that. So these people not only got work, they got paid much more than they would have been paid working in a local market and that his business is thriving. And what he said to me was, the successful entrepreneurs are the ones who see the problems that we're facing and see it as an opportunity as a, to not just make money for ourselves, but to help other people grow with us. And I found that coming through with so many people I spoke with. You know, I, they would say another uh, lady I spoke to with who's a designer, she says, I don't want to win alone. I want other people to win with me. And she launched a, um, a design training course to bring women into design, which she offers for free. And she's trained 3,000 young women to come over the last three years to do, you know, to enter the design industry. And there's really this 
this sense of we're all in this together and if we work and no one else will solve the problem for us. But if we put our minds to it, if we put our talent to it, we can resolve it. It was It's very inspiring. Mm, very, very indeed. And for those young, uh, young people who don't have startup money, who don't have, are there any entrepreneurship schemes? Do they work? Um, did you it, come across any of those? I mean, it is, it's difficult accessing funding for everyone, I think. Um, the guy, Ian, who founded Andela, he's now, he's now founded Future Africa, which is a funding program designed to fund early stage startups. He raises capital across the continent. He wants African investors to support African businesses because he thinks they understand better the on the ground challenges. And you know, he said, how can you start a business when you need to have enough money to succeed in the business, enough money to pay your rent? And we live in a, in a country where that is not always so easy. So it is definitely a challenge. Um, many people start small. In fact, um, a lot of people start on Instagram because the costs are very, very low. And it's actually a really good, almost everyone who runs a little side hustle has an Instagram side hustle. So there are ways around it, but yes, obviously the people who are the poorest yeah. struggle the most. Yeah. And you, when you talk about them, you also talk about the importance of technology, particularly mobile technology and Instagram, as you, as you, as you just mentioned. That is driving this change. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So, how is the boom, the booming investment in tech in the tech industry, uh, kind of changing uh, um, uh, that landscape? Um, you know, could you kind of uh, in a in a in a timeline? Is there a do, do you see that difference in the past? What you know, five years? People talk about you know, things were different before and now, and how do people see, you know, envisage the future? You know, what, what sense did you get from the conversations with them? Promising? Actually, the government is definitely noticing it. The governor of Lagos calls technologies a new oil for the potential that it has for, for jobs in particular and for, you know, income generation for this younger generation. Young people themselves are really, um, who work in the tech industry, told me that they, they consider it it's, it's freedom because this is an industry that is free from the nepotism and uh, you have to know someone approach to getting a job. It's a much more of a meritocracy. If you know what you're doing, if you're good at what you're doing, you're going to get a job. Whereas in other, you know, often in the past, very talented young people would look for jobs in government, oil and gas, and that was often very nepotistic is what they had told what they told me so they feel that this offers them a freedom to direct their own future and they think in some ways the government is a little bit challenged by that um, because not only are they are they earning they're earning well you know and NSARS was was the revolution that was funded by tech in a way enabled by tech and funded by tech and a couple of the people who worked in it said to me that although the government is aware of its potential and is investing in tech hubs in Lagos and in other parts in uh, other cities in um, Nigeria as well. They are also a little bit threatened by the, by the ad advantages it offers both in terms of communication and in terms of raising people's income and expectations. There's a general feeling of positivity. I think that's one of the amazing things that you get when you travel in Nigeria. Well, I was in Lagos. 
the energy, the enthusiasm, this belief that things are going to get better. It's, it's really, I don't know if you see that when you're, you know, when you're yes, traveling. Absolutely. 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 And what about the young women, the young women you met, you know, mm -hmm. because often when we have conversations about youth, the tendency is to take a, talk about male youth. And there is a, one reference here or there about uh, uh, young women. But tell me more about the young women you met and what they do, what, how are they engaged, what are the challenges they face, if anything specific. I think Nigeria is still a very patriarchal society. Um, there are expectations about what women's roles are in the home and in the workplace. But young women, and again, those under 25, more so perhaps than those over 30, are really pushing against this now. They're being brought up by families, parents who also are not as traditional as perhaps their grandparents were. And so they're having greater expectations of what's available. And this speak up attitude definitely comes into it in terms of gender equality. One really uh, interesting lady I met, Odenayu, she founded um, a business called Piggyvest, which is the biggest online banking or one of the biggest online banking services in Nigeria. When she was 23, she's 28 now, has 3 million customers. She's the chief operating officer. She makes sure she employs minimum of 50% women. And she's the founder of the Feminist Coalition, one of the co-founders, which I just spoke about. And she said to me, you know, I went into tech, which is not a women's industry. I run the business, which is not a woman's job. I founded Feminist Coalition because I want to talk to women about money and power and opportunity. And I found her representative of the kind of like, we got this attitude that a lot of young women definitely had. Um, and I think young men are more on board with that too. You know, they're, they're, it's, big, it's starting to break, to, to break down. I spoke to filmmakers who were trying to represent women differently in films. And it, in general, I think there's a real awareness of that coming through. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything, <laughs> go ahead, Tristan. No, no. Please go ahead. You were finishing a sentence or something. No, no, I was just going to say, but I don't think it's, it's a smooth and simple and easy path. You know, it is. It's, there are still um, expectations that you will get married and have children and stop working, but people are starting to, to, to challenge that now. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you would like to, to share before we bring this to a close? I would love to continue this fantastic, you know, conversation, but uh, I'm afraid, you know, this, uh, the time is, uh, is, is short, but any final comment you would like to make? Um, Anything that you would like our, our viewers and participants to, to take I mean, from the book that we didn't um, mention? I think we've, we've really covered it. I think the thing that I took from it that inspired me so much was the positivity and the energy and the kind of can-do energy that's there. You know, that almost everyone I spoke to said, you know, we have a lot of problems and no one is coming to fix them. We are going to have to fix them. And, and they're ready to fix them, you know taking steps, very engaged in, you know, in, in lots of ways in trying to build the, the country that they want it was such an inspiring trip. I was, I enjoyed it so much. And the people are wonderful, that, that I met were wonderful. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Trish. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thanks everyone for joining us today and uh, watching this conversation. 
If you'd like to know more about this prize-winning book and know more about the young disruptors uh, that Trish uh, spoke to and interviewed in Nigeria, uh, please look out for the book that is coming out uh, on the 26th of May, published by Cambridge University Press. And um, to learn more about the work of the RSA, please uh, check the website, which is thersa.org. And thank you all for watching. Until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.